Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Y'all, I am so lucky to call Lindsay Murphy a friend, and I am so excited to introduce her to you on today's episode of the Lisa Congdon Sessions. Lindsay is the award-winning creator and host of Fab Lab with Crazy Aunt Lindsay, YouTube's most beloved kids' science web series that takes everyday science concepts and turns them into fabulous DIY projects that children can do at home with their families. Since launching in 2010, the show has garnered partnerships with Scientific American and the New York Academy of Sciences and has been published in various national family magazines and, in 2019, crowdfunded nearly $100,000 for independent production. Lindsay is a regular guest on television shows, conference stages, and has been invited to speak at places like Harvard University and Google to give talks on such topics as creative media and science communications, diversity in STEM, fundraising, entrepreneurship, being brave, having courage, branding and marketing in the digital age, and on and on. She is the four-time live stream host of TEDx Portland and has hosted two travel web series for Travel Oregon and Wyden and Kennedy's On She Goes Seasons 1 and 2. Before jumping feet first into full-time business ownership in 2017, Lindsay spent more than 15 years in digital media, marketing, advertising, and business development. Having started her career at MTV at age 19, as you will find out, and spent some time at Nike and Wyden and Kennedy, big places in Portland. As the CEO of Murph Media Co., Lindsay specializes in making content from the heart, digital consulting, and audience and creative development. Named one of Portland Business Journal's 40 Under 40 for 2019, Lindsay has been called a visionary, a force of nature, a breath of fresh air, and is said to, quote, light up the darkest corners of the room. And I can vouch for that fact. This may be because she believes in and strives toward a world full of joy, fun, healed hearts, and people empowered and released to truly live out the fullness of their lives. These are the values that inform every single thing she does. Let's welcome Lindsay to the show. Lindsay, welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions. (laughs) So good to have you. I'm so stoked. I want to start by having you tell your story. And the place I want to begin is your childhood. So tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was your life like? All that good stuff. Yeah, uh, well, I grew up in a wonderful town called Marstown, New Jersey, one of the towns of the revolution. George Washington kicked it for a couple winters in my in my literal backyard. <laughs> I'm about... I'm the seventh generation to be raised in the house that I grew up in, so... Whoa. Yeah, deep roots, one town, everyone knew everybody. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I mean, super diverse. 
my parents were some of my favorite just success stories. My mom was a single mom. I'm the first woman in my entire family to not be pregnant by 16. Whoa. So every woman in my family was either a domestic worker up to my grandmother and my mom was an executive assistant. So where my grandmothers and the women before her took care of the executive's children, my mom took care of the executive. I decided I was going to be the executive. That was what my goal was from the time I was like seven, eight years old was to become a corporate (laughs) executive, which if you know me, you know that that's kind of crazy, right? Because I'm, it's interesting, like I like structure, but I am 100% like not regiment, not routine. I don't fit into a box whatsoever. And that at the time is what corporate work really kind of required. And it was just so like antithetical to my personality. But I grew up, you know, in the legal department at Warner Lambert, what is now Pfizer. So my dad was a carpenter. He was from the post-depression Jim Crow South. He literally walked north when he was 17 to find his mother, my grandmother. His mother was a part of the great migration of, yeah. of a generation that went from the South to the North looking for opportunities in the 1920s to about the 1950s. And we forget that these stories in history books are individual experiences and they're not you know I remember reading history books and thinking about the great migration of like you know a mom and a dad you know and a couple of kids and some suitcases and a car and they're driving to their new destination and the reality is that a lot of people had families that they had to leave behind and you know export themselves manually you know physically migrate through a lot of arduousness to get to something that was really uncertain so my dad he was left when he was eight When he was 17, he reunited with his mother. He became among the first black union carpenters in the state of New Jersey. I'm just, I'm so proud of my dad. Both of my parents were highly functional people. Like they had really important work in what they were doing, but they were also these like latent creatives where my mom was always sewing. My dad who could not read, my dad was completely illiterate when he was on his deathbed at 72, about 15 years ago, but he could draw blueprints and he literally built our family home with his two hands the hands that he built for my mom with his own hands the only thing he didn't do was the plumbing and the electricity but he was an incredible cook he was an incredible musician he was a gymnast he was a boxer my dad had this incredible life he traveled the world so when I think about like my parents and sort of you know, what could have been, I'm just so impressed with the lives that they were able to create for themselves and their children with what they had. That's amazing. I, you've probably already read it, but The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson is about the Great Migration. And it was written, I don't know, like a decade ago, but it's got some renewed popularity. It's this amazing book, which you can also listen to on audio about the Great Migration and all these different sort of actual true stories that she researched about folks who went north and how many families were split up and just in the way that you're describing. So much, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, what was high school like for you? I <laughs> I don't know. It's such an interesting question for me because we often are our worst selves in high school or the version of ourselves that we think we should be, that we grow out of. So I'm curious what what high school was like for you. (laughs) So I got my yearbook. I just took this out of storage. My mom sent this to me about like two years ago. Let me see if I can find it. I was voted most likely to be seen roaming the halls. 
Oh my gosh. Which means I was never in class. I was a really charming, busy, fun, extroverted person, but I was a terrible student. I had no interest in homework. I was great in class, but that's just because there were a lot of people around and there were lots of opportunities to talk. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I never did homework. I just had no interest really in academics. But when I was a junior in high school, I was accepted into a program at the Fashion Institute of Technology. So I went to FIT, which essentially means I was in college from the time I was 16 until 18, learning about fashion merchandising, learning about advertising, learning about, you know, the design process, in some cases, learning about supply chain. I thought I was going to work in the fashion industry. I was convinced that I was going to be, you know, Anna Wintour. I was going to be the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine, and that was going to be my life. I was totally convinced. But uh, I did really well at FIT, but it didn't quite matter. (laughs) Well, and we'll get to why in a moment. But two fun facts. My mom did a stint in Morristown, New Jersey, back in the day. I think she worked for 4-H or something there. I think back when she was in in her early 20s after college. Okay. I love this. Fun fact. And so if you ever meet my mom, you can you can talk about that. I would love to meet your mom. And actually, <laughs> my wife's cousin lived there for a period of time as well. So I had heard of it. Oh, wait. She's, she's showing me the picture. Ah. There you are. And at the bottom it says, number three, most likely to be seen roaming the hall. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you're off to FIT. Was that in New York? Yeah, that's in New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was it like living in New York? Like, I mean, obviously it wasn't the first time you'd been there. Morristown's not that far, right? Well, so I was still in high school. So okay. I lived at my parents' house in Morristown and I would commute on Saturdays and in the summertime okay. to class. And then when I, you know, when I graduated high school, I went to community college. Shout out to County College of Morris, Harvard on the Hill. And when I turned 19, I got recruited into a role at MTV Networks. And I mean, geez, I I celebrated my 20th birthday in my office at MTV. And I think it was like maybe another six years before I actually moved into New York, like had a dwelling. I always lived in either... I mean, up until I was 19, I lived in Marstown, and then I lived in an amazing town called Glen Ridge slash Montclair, New Jersey, for about six years. And then I spent my last, I think, three or five years in New York proper. So I was a commuter. I was like a proud New Jersey commuter <laughs> for I love it. most of my life. Yeah. Okay, so let's rewind about 45 seconds to the place where you said, I was recruited to work for MTV <laughs> yeah. at 19. Like, how does that happen to a 19-year-old? Tell us that story. Yeah. So I, you know, I give a lot of talks and I give a lot of advice and it's always around mentorship. It, it very, you know, growing up, I was always told like, you know, be great, be excellent, do your best. And very early, I realized that most people in like the most seemingly desirable places aren't there because they're the best. They're there because they know someone. And so I was really blessed to have access to an incredible community of people in Morristown. My friend's parents were such wonderful people in so many cases. My church community was just full of amazing examples of what was possible. And so 
I, I had a big sister. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little sister, big brothers, big sisters. Shout out to Melissa Descoli Johnson. So I've always had mentors. I've always had community members who were invested in, activated in, interested in whatever it is that I wanted to do, however it is that I wanted to achieve. So by the time I got to community college, I was in slightly more formal mentorship programs that were specific to career activation. And I had been paired with the former like VP of Nickelodeon. He'd been at Nickelodeon from its onset for like 20 years. He was basically retired. And he just literally like the Tuesday before I was graduating from community college and set to transfer to Rutgers to finish my undergraduate he was like, hey, I just had drinks with, you know, my friend Hank Keishlin. He's the chief of staff at MTV Networks. They have this new department they're trying to figure out called Video On Demand. Like, would you would you ever be interested in something like that? And he was straight up like, they don't want to put a project manager or a technical writer on it because it would be too expensive and they're not convinced that it's going to go anywhere. So, you know, it pays like 15, 18 bucks an hour. You know, it's a three-month contract. Would you be open to it? And I was like, MTV? Heck yeah! Like, I don't care what, you, you know, I'll be the janitor. I will work in the mailroom. <laughs> I will do anything to work at a place like MTV Networks. And I went in for an interview the following week. And literally, like, I was in my cap and gown. And I got a call that I had been offered the job at MTV Networks. And they asked if I could start the next day. And I was like, well, I'm graduating right now. And they're like, okay, see you Monday. But yeah, I, I had a mentor who just so happened to know about an opportunity. And... I had the energy and the curiosity and the openness and it was, it just, it just happened. I love that story. So how long were you there? And then what, what happened next for you? And yeah, I think that people are going to start to weave together your story so p- people can start to understand how you sort of became the person you are today. And, <laughs> and the reason that I want to talk about all the different things you did is because I think that's what makes you so good at what you do now. So where did that go from there? Yeah, so I was there for just shy of a year and a half. It went from a three-month contract to a six-month contract to one year on staff. And it was at that point that I realized I was being underpaid. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Significantly. And I couldn't afford really to continue working there. I asked for a raise. They were open to like an incremental raise, but it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be viable. Right? right. And at that particular time, the business, like when we first started it, it was like me, my colleague, Sabrina, and like a couple of guys in the encoding room. And that was it. And by the time we were finished, like there was a whole system to it, you know, all the different departments knew exactly what to do. Apple, you know, iTunes, like all these other organizations, we were all working together. So like there was such a system that was already happening. So it went from like this little, like, we don't know what's happening. Like we're just making this up as we go along to this really like great process. And at that point it was kind of boring. And so I wasn't being paid well. It was kind of becoming boring. It was basically a trafficking job, like a a program trafficking job. So I found out about something called Major League Gaming, which at the time was a startup, like Sundance, Eric, Subleheck. Like, it was just a couple of guys that were attempting to legitimize video games as a sport. And they started something called MLG, Major League Gaming. And so it was either their first or second year. It was their first office. I just like ran into these guys once out in New York and they were like, would you want to be Eric's assistant? And I'm like, sure. 
I don't even know what that means. I've never been an executive <laughs> assistant, but my mom was an executive assistant. Well, so I was going to say, you, you, you were destined to at least try it once, right? <laughs> right. So I was like, sure. And it paid, like, I think twelve or 15000 more than I was making at MTV. And it, in my mind, it was easier. It was not. But it was great. I got to be, I mean, watching something like MLG, you know, Xbox games, like all the different people that go into making a video game and go into making a league. Like we had some incredible people come through our office. It was just a really fun time. And I got to work with Walmart. And it's funny because when I was in high school, college, I worked on the floor at Walmart. Like I was a Walmart, like basically like greeter, right? And so to realize that there was so much more to corporate retail, you know, working with Walmart really closely, it introduced me to advertising in a really sort of roundabout way. And then I got recruited into a role from there. And my first job in proper advertising at Deutsch Advertising, Donnie Deutsch, that whole gang. And I went to be an executive assistant for one of their senior partners, their only female partner, senior partner, Bobby Casey Howell, who was just like the most amazing woman. She like came from like American Express background, just like really amazing person who was notorious for kind of being a difficult personality but for some reason I do really well with hard personalities <laughs> maybe it's because <laughs> my dad was an alcoholic I don't know <laughs> yeah I've always been able to manage and negotiate difficult personalities and that I think is a trait that has pushed me along where most people need people to be nice and need people to be this and like need a lot of reinforcement I was just a ray of sunshine and I loved going to work and I loved serving the people I was with and learning the things that I was learning. And I ended up in business development there. After that, I was there for about two years. I went from an executive assistant to a biz dev manager pretty quickly. I mean, if anyone's read Outliers, like I am totally a poster child for the idea that it's really about good timing. Digital was just becoming a thing. And I was able to do a lot of really, really dynamic work with some really big brands really early in my career. And then I was recruited into a director of business development role at 25 in New York. I got to run an entire business development arm of an agency, which is like the literal lifeblood of any organization aside from its main client tiers. And it's in that role that I learned that advertising, or at least traditional advertising, was all about Not just who you know, yeah, like just that lesson again, it's who you know, but in these cases, you think that a really good pitch or you think that a a really great work ethic or you really think that your most creative self is the thing that's going to get this business. And the reality is, it's that, you know, oh, so-and-so got that giant contract because he's married to the niece of the father-in-law or whatever it is, like you learn that. And that's not so much the case anymore. Advertising has absolutely changed But advertising was changing very quickly at that time. And it had everything to do with, you know, social groups and who was married to who and favors and who was friends and yacht clubs and like all those things that seem so passe and seem so, you know, old guard. That was really how things worked. The big contracts stayed in the family. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, oh, yeah, you landed that one, you know, $2.5 million contract. Good for you do it again. Oh, you can't. It's not because you're a failure. It's because you don't know and have the quote unquote right relationships with the right people that ultimately turn you into a hundred millionaire or a billionaire or whatever it is, or land those types of contracts for your business. So 
that was a really interesting time. <laughs> and I look back on it fondly and with a lot of lessons, but at the time I was like, oh, I'm a failure. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So what next? After MTV or after the director of business development role? Yeah. Well, like after, yeah, after the ad agency. Mm-hmm. So after the biz dev role, which I was in for like a little more than a year, I plummeted into a straight up quarter life crisis <laughs> at 26. I, like I said, I felt like a failure. I was riddled with depression, anxiety. I didn't know what was wrong. I, I couldn't understand because at the time I had everything that in my mind, like the person, the visual of the person that my child self created of what a successful woman was. I had all that. I had the German car. I had the six plus figure salary. I had the famous friends. I had the fabulous wardrobe. I had the amazing apartment. I had, you know, all the stuff and life completely sucked and I couldn't understand why I wasn't happy, but I just woke up one day and I was like, I can change this. If I can create this, then I can change this. And I had no clue what that meant. <laughs> and I wasn't even necessarily using those exact words at the time, but that was absolutely the heart. It's like, if I got myself here, then I can get myself where I really want to be and where I really want to be is spiritually fulfilled, full of joy, happy, in love, in community. I want a closer relationship with my family. I want a closer relationship with myself. And so two weeks after I realized I hated my life, I quit my job. A month later, I moved out of my beautiful, fabulous apartment and the community of women who I lived with, you know, essentially lived, lived around in Glenridge, Montclair, New Jersey, they literally were like, you need a break, we can give you a break. Here is a key to my guest house. Here is a key to our car. Here's a schedule. Watch our kids part-time, figure yourself out, and we'll just be here for you. And so for about a year and a half, I just, I literally like guest house and pool house hopped Nannied. All through Montclair, babysitting. There's a difference between nannying and babysitting. Was, okay. All right. I was never, ever <laughs> nanny. <laughs> Sorry. But I, but I wasn't done. No, no. I'm not fluent in nanny versus babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I babysat. So basically a nanny will work with one family, essentially, and a babysitter sure. is someone who will just okay. sort of go in and out whenever is necessary. So You got around the neighborhood. Yeah, I, I got around, girl. <laughs> And it was in that season of life that, and it's so funny, all the things that I had in a way, like consciously been trying to avoid specifically taking care of people's children, because as I said, all the women in my family up until my mom, and I very much so include my mom in this in a philosophical way, took care of people's children. They took care of people's homes, took care of people's children. And I wanted more autonomy. I wanted to feel like I was the authority in my own life. Because to me, that's what power looked like. That's what success looked like. Like, you're calling the shots. You're doing the thing. Your decisions have direct impact on what's created. And that was what I wanted. And so to go from director of business development to babysitter, and in, in many cases, I was working in the homes of the people I otherwise would have been at a board meeting with, you know, right. it was incredibly humbling, but like in the best way possible, because I, I learned that some things you just can't avoid. Like I am amazing with children and it's 
really just that simple. Like, I am amazing with kids, and I love families, and I love observing people in their natural habitats and understanding what really makes them tick and how families run. Like, my family was kind of dysfunctional. I I have a beautiful family. I have a beautiful family history. I love everything about it, but my mom wasn't really maternal. My dad wasn't really emotionally available. He was extremely present, but, like, I didn't get, like, that at the time, that standard visual of what a family is and what a family unit, how it operates. And so to be in these essentially very wealthy people's homes and watching how different and how similar (laughs) things can be and seeing the truth, like it just, it was just really exhilarating from like a sociological observational standpoint. But kids are a lot of fun. Like kids are just fun. Like you just, you get to make it up as you go along, they're always asking questions as a person who says curious. And it took me a long time to realize this, but creative as I am, like there are just a never ending well of opportunities to exercise that part of myself. So that was just like the best year and a half, two years of my life. And on the heels of that, the Fab Lab in Crazy Aunt Lindsay was born, but it was born directly out of that time of me sort of like, having this midlife or quarter life crisis and having to fall on something that I had previously completely sworn off and done everything to avoid. And yet there it is. It's, it's my calling. I think sometimes we avoid our calling. We avoid our purpose because we think that there's something greater, you know, the things that come naturally to us tend to be the thing that we overlook the most. And it tends to be where everything is at. So you have a a YouTube channel called Fab Lab and it, it's not like you woke up one day and said, I'm going to start a YouTube channel and call it the Fab Lab and I'm going to talk about science with kids. Nope. So how did that all come to be? And and then I want to talk about why science. But first, let's talk about how that came to be because you're, you're still doing it. How many years now? <laughs> oh, gosh, 11. It was 11 years in November. Yeah. Crazy. And so if you go on YouTube and search for Lindsay's videos, there's there's just years of them on there and they get better and better and better, obviously, with technology and, <laughs> and all that good stuff. But talk about how that all started. Yeah. So this was about like 2009. I was sort of at the end of my childcare period. I had gotten picked up to be on the like, this is well before influencer or even social media was even a thing. Like these were, this is like... Instagram didn't even exist until 2011. Oh oh, no, there's no iPhone. There's nothing. There's no, there's not even, there's no iPhone, there's no iPad. Like there's no such thing as OET. Like there's none of that, right? So this is year one, right? Like this is like AD zero, okay? (laughs) And... Like I said, I was working in the homes of a lot of media executives, fashion executives, and I had gotten picked up to be on the, it's funny, I call it, to me, it was the literal first influencer strategy team ever. Edelman and Xbox were launching what we now know as Xbox Connect. This is about a year before that. So it was a top secret project called Project Natal. And they gathered this team from all over the country, and I think even the world, people who had internet presences. So really early bloggers, really early vloggers, really early, you know, people who are just on the internet creating content before content was a concept, was an actual function. And 
I only got picked up not because I didn't even have a computer at that point, I don't think. <laughs> but because of the work that I had done at MLG, Major League Gaming, I knew people at Xbox. And I had been saying at this point, like in the two years I was babysitting, whenever I would see friends in New York, I'd be like, yeah, I think I want to get back into writing fashion. Like I always wanted to be an editor at, at, you know, Vogue. So maybe I'll try to do that. And I happened to have a friend, John Simon, who had a blog. And so I got to cover... And it was the first year that Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week recognized bloggers as members of the press. Mm. So he had all these press passes and he's like, I need writers to go in and cover these shows. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. I've never written. I mean, I was the fashion editor of my high school newspaper, which means I like watched full frontal fashion and just like wrote whatever I wanted, like once a quarter like that was it was not a real thing so when I was like oh this is a dream I get to sit in the stands I will absolutely go and do this so for you know a week and a half I would cover these shows and some of my writing got seen and just got picked up and the Edelman team had I guess had already been talking about me because of the work I had done with Xbox previously because of Halo and MLG but anyway I got asked to join the strategy team but it was really just like an early influencer team to launch Xbox Connect. So that meant I was going into New York and I wasn't going to be able to babysit anymore because I'd be traveling a lot. And one of the parents at this like little going away party that this little neighborhood essentially threw for me, one of the dads was over at Spike TV, I don't remember, and he was like, hey, have you ever heard of YouTube? Like these activities, these projects, you know, these things that you do with our kids, like they're going to miss you so much. It'd be a great way to keep in touch. Like that was the mentality then. Like, have you ever heard of YouTube? Like, it'd be a really great way to, like, keep in touch with the kids. Like, put some videos up of these things that you do. And I just kind of filed it away. I didn't think very much of it because in my mind I was going to, you know, go off into the world and, you know, pick up life where I left it off two years previously. Like a new career. Yeah. 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 And a year later when the project was done, when the Xbox job was done, I was in the Outer Banks looking out on the water completely at a loss for what to do next (laughs) and I just had this realization I had this memory of like oh you should make videos for our kids it'd be a great way to keep in touch and it was literally like a function of panic because I'm like I have no idea where my money's gonna come from I'm suddenly a consultant like I don't know how to do this I don't know where my next job is gonna come from so I'll just go back to babysitting and just because I'm the type of person I am you know come bearing gifts I didn't want to reach out to people and be like, hey, I need something, like, let me know if you, you know, have what I need. I was like, let me give you something, and then maybe it will reinitiate, you know, a meaningful relationship. So I grabbed my goddaughter and made Play-Doh. I sent it out to an 11-person email list, and my schedule completely filled up with babysitting jobs. But for the next year, anytime I went over to a kid's house, I'd get a phone call a day or two before, like, are we going to make a video when you come over? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to make a video. So the first couple years of videos, it's literally me actively babysitting and just like making it up, literally just making the experience up as we go along, coming over, going into the pantry, going into the playroom and just creating something with the kids on video and then putting it up on YouTube. And after a couple years, I mean, the views just like skyrocketed and I wasn't marketing them. It was literally called Doing Stuff with Crazy Aunt Lindsay. That was what the show was. <laughs> Doing Stuff with Crazy Aunt Lindsay for like two, three years. And then somebody on Twitter literally tweeted out a video that I did like, we love this adorable Crazy Aunt Lindsay science show. And I'm like, it's a science show. Oh, okay. So it really was just like an effective community. Like I didn't intentionally go out to make a kid science show. 
I didn't intentionally go out to make a YouTube show. It just happened. And one foot in front of the other, other observations and input, it literally just packed the cake into what it became. I love that you did this thing that you loved. You love kids. You went back to babysitting because, you know, you needed to feed yourself, you know, pay your rent or whatever. And then while you're with the kids, you're just doing this thing you love. And then it becomes the next thing that you do, right? And so many people, I think, get ideas and think they have to go big time immediately or they go to that sort of like, you know, I want, I want to become famous. I want to do this and I want this to be successful and I want to monetize it. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you weren't really thinking about that very much. You were like, I'm just going to have fun. And then once it sort of gained traction, then you were like, okay, let's turn this into something. Since then, you've gone on for, you know, over a decade to continue to make these videos. Your career has also sort of morphed into public speaking. And you even, I think when you moved to Portland, which happened how long ago? Oh, eight years. Yeah, we know each other now from Portland, but you've been here even longer than I have. You've also had a couple of other jobs. You worked at Wyden and Kennedy and Nike and people see how talented you are and how passionate you are. And they say, we want a piece of that. (laughs) But ultimately, you always sort of land back in this space, right, where you're you're creating content with and for kids. And I almost think it's funny because, like, for a long time it was for kids, but it really, it's really, it's, like, for and about families. Like, it's not just about the children. You know, when I think about going to therapy, right, most of us are working through our childhood traumas. (laughs) And unfortunately, a lot of that childhood trauma comes from our parents who were not allowed to themselves to be children in the fullest way they weren't allowed to fully realize who they were neither of my parents they are incredible people and have made incredible things out of their life like I there's there are no people on this planet that I'm prouder of or more impressed by than both of my parents but my dad was not fully realized my mom was not fully realized only in retirement is my mom you know my mom was the sixth generation to be raised in the house that she grew up in. My mom had four kids by the time she was 26, you know, starting at 16. Like, so much is cut off. You know, when I think about my grandmother who had to raise other people's children, no one was around to raise my mom. No one was around to raise my dad. Uh, So a lot of their wounds, a lot of their hurts, a lot of their limitations came from traumas in childhood. And you know, we become very high functioning people, many of us become quite successful. But our child self still needs a hug, our child self still needs time and space to just sit on the floor and play and not be told no, or to stop like, our child self needs language to emote and make sense of how we feel, as opposed to stuff it down or contain it to continue going in whatever direction is necessary at the moment. Like, The work that I do is not just about being great with kids. It's recognizing my inner child self is desperate for this level of play and freedom and curiosity and creating the opportunities and the license, you know, the permission to run and play and be free and discover oneself and the world around you. And that has 
no age limit, that has no age limit. And especially as I, you know, look ahead, uh, a lot of the work that I do, I realized it was never just about the kids themselves. It was about me healing and discovering my child self and figuring out how to, number one, not create traumatized childhoods for other actual kids, but how to really lend it to what we need as adults. I mean, my friends, all of my friends, if you, if you check me out on Instagram, I mean, I am just a giant kid. My best friend is just a giant kid. We just play. And she, you know, she has a very serious job in the disabilities community. Like, But it really is about play and freedom and allowing that. I love that. I also, I think our parents are probably from the same generation. My mom grew up really poor on a farm and had to work and take care of her siblings. She was the oldest sibling. And even my dad, who grew up in an upper middle class family, had, you know, sort of very strict parents with very, you know, rigid ideas about how he should behave. And in fact, I was just talking to my family over Christmas about how, you know, trauma is passed on from one generation to the next. My dad read this book called The Body Keeps a Score, which I actually read last year, which is basically about how we embody trauma. And then also why it's so important to work through it, which is what you're doing. And that it's so easy to sort of blame ourselves for passing on trauma or to blame our parents for passing trauma onto us when, you know, and I, I love that you've sort of given yourself permission to not continue that trauma. And that by doing that, you are giving other adults and other children permission also to play and to be their full selves. I, I'm trying right now to do a better job of relaxing into things that are not necessarily productive and says the Capricorn says the Capricorn who's known for doing all the things. So yesterday I decided this year that I was going to start keeping a sketchbook again and a sketchbook has no purpose other than to like help you explore ideas or whatever. Like you can't, you know, it's, it's a book you make for yourself. You don't sell it. There's not, you know, there's no way that it sort of becomes something else. I mean, maybe there are some ways it becomes something else, but inherent in it it's just sort of this like luxurious activity to sit and draw with no purpose and I found myself yesterday while I was you know drawing in my sketchbook and feeling very playful and happy simultaneously having anxiety because (laughs) all three of my employees were in the other room packing orders and I was like I should be doing something productive like they're doing I shouldn't be doing this. I felt sort of guilty about it. And I think that is, you know, like a message that I sort of, that's been passed on to me, right? Like that we should as adults always be doing these serious things. Mm -hmm. And I had to stop myself and say, no, this is an important part of your day. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing this. In fact, there's everything right about doing this. And that taking care of yourself and your own kind of intrinsic need to play and relax is going to make you a better boss, is going to make you a better business owner, is going to make you a better human. And it's not like your employees are in the other room going, ah, Lisa's in there screwing around while we're doing all the work, right? Which is what in my head was the story I was telling myself. 100%. Yeah. And I, I need personally examples of people like you in my life 
who embody playfulness and embody exploration and embody joy. And I think other people do too, because I think we so often get caught up in this rhythm of, I must always be productive and I must always be working. And I think that's having a really negative impact on our world. And so I really appreciate what you do. And I, and I loved hearing sort of what is underneath all of that for you. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a little bit of an aside, but, you know, I very much come from that same mentality. Like I was very hot on myself for a really long time for not being more productive, for not making more money, for not being on the conveyor belt of, you know, graduating, getting engaged, you know, getting married, having the kids, buying the house, like the conveyor belt that, you know, previously, you know, I'll just say like pre-2020, like much earlier than that, but like there's the conveyor belt to life. There are the boxes that you check. There is the system that you follow. And I was really hard on myself for sort of seeing things slightly differently. And, you know, when we came up against 2020, some of the newest work that I'm doing now outside of the Fab Lab, which funny enough, (laughs) is definitely an evolution of it. But, you know, I created a workshop essentially teaching people how to freaking relax. In 2020, I magically lost 50 pounds. Over the course of a few months, probably about six months, I was not working out. I was not intending to lose weight. I was not eating any different. I mean, genuinely, I was I've kind of always been active. Like I don't go to the gym. I don't intentionally do workouts, but I walk all the time. I'm a commuter. I don't have a car. So I'm always walking to meetings. I'm always like, you know, using my body, but like I'm not working out. I eat fairly healthily, but just like everybody else, I was making banana bread and ordering Uber Eats, right? Like I was doing all the normal things and then less, right? In this period. Right. And somehow 40, 50 pounds melted off. And when people started asking and I started really introspecting, like, what was this process? I literally just had to say I processed emotional weight. And how I did that was by relaxing, luxuriating, literally resting. I lost this weight because I rested. I was not trying to lose weight. You know, there were a couple of things that I was trying to address, like some skin issues that I had. I had the time to, you know, really focus in on like some very specific things, but it was really just allowing myself time and space off social media, out of the public eye, really introspecting, allowing myself to cry, laugh, do nothing and not feel bad about it. And it was the most productive year, two years result creating experience I ever had and now you know trying to figure out exactly what it looks like to do because people don't know how yeah it's not even that they don't want to rest they don't know how and they don't get it like literally saying like turn off and relax it's like yeah but then what and so trying to teach people that trying to almost like convince people that the secret really is in relaxation and play We'll see. It's certainly true for creativity. I I did a bunch of research on kind of like what makes highly creative people or highly innovative people the way that they are. And one of, I mean, there it's interesting because there's both this side of creative people where they are kind of very dogged and disciplined about trying new things. But at the same time, they're trying new things. They're open to innovation. They're open to 
new ideas. There's a certain openness, right? An ability to kind of allow their mind to wander, to daydream. The last podcast episode I did was with this guy named Kyle Steed, and we talked about boredom, the gift of boredom, because boredom is just like a word for like not knowing what to do with yourself in the moment, right? And oftentimes when we're bored, we get the best ideas or if we allow ourselves, we can actually daydream and fantasize about things that if we're busy working all of the time, we would never think of. Do you think of your purpose in life or how do you think of your purpose in life? Is it connected to this idea of being a model for play and for <laughs> allowing your imagination to go wild? You know, I, <laughs> I kind of have a newly unromantic relationship with the idea of purpose. You know, it's a, it's kind of a long story. I won't take you through it, but you know, I, in addition to advertising and in addition to fashion in addition to, you know, content creation and, you know, kids stuff, like in addition to that, I'm also a longtime theologian uh, from the time I was probably about eight or 12. I was actively studying religions and specifically God and trying to understand God and, what that means and why and all those things. And you did a short stint at, <laughs> at it was at Yale? Princeton or Seminary, Princeton, yeah. Princeton Seminary, yeah. Yeah. I did a yeah, I did a fellowship at Princeton Seminary as an atheist, funny enough. But yes, so I did a fellowship at Princeton Seminary. I've been studying religion and religious community and philosophy for my entire life. And anyone that talks to me, sometimes I make people's heads hurt because I'm like always like <laughs> going... Going there, but I say all this to say I'm at the stage where I think things are, and the unique quality of being a human being is that you can tell stories. I mean, genuinely. The most monumental class I ever took at community college was this class called Philosophy of Person, which explored what makes human beings truly different because there is nothing about human function that is not somehow replicated in the animal kingdom. Every invertebrate everyone has a communication everyone has a family structure everyone like there's all mating ritual like there's everything that exists for us exists in nature somewhere also down to trees right so what is it that makes human beings unique and the thing that makes human beings unique is that we have the specific ability which is not seen anywhere else to create stories and specifically lies, and not bad lies, but just making something up for the sake of it being, just making it up, um, making up a story, a narrative, right? We have that unique ability. And that's not to say that, you know, elephants can't, you know, put a paintbrush on a, or, you know, a lioness can't trick its prey. Like there are functions of those things, but creating a unique story that is not necessarily true is what human beings are able to do, which is unusual from everything else in the world, excuse me, in the universe. And so picking that up when I was 18 and sort of carrying that through my life as an atheist, as someone who was deeply involved in Christian community, I was a pastor for several years, in some ways I still am. Purpose was really hard. You know, what is purpose? And the thing that I, I like, as I said, the thing that I've sort of landed on is we get to make it up. We get to decide. You know, we get to decide what our purpose is. We could decide what our mission is. And some of us are born into families where, you know, I grew up around a lot of really wealthy people. Some kids, their purpose is to take over the family business. And that's it. 
I did not grow up with that, right? I did not grow up with many expectations. I did not grow up with many parameters. So I got to figure out what that was. There are many other people who, you know, get really into religion or get really into something political or get really into a cause, and that is their purpose. And the possibility of you being born, like Gary Vaynerchuk, who's also a Jersey boy, shout out to Gary, you know, he talks about it's like a one in a trillion chance that you're even here. I don't necessarily believe that there was some, you know, oh, Lisa Compton, like she needs to be born right now to these specific people at this specific time because she has this purpose. I think we started from some mystery and we are just a collection of experiences that inform how we experience the world at this place, at this time, and we have the parents that we have, and we don't have any control over the experience our parents create for us at all. It's all random. And just like in string theory, just like in physics, the randomness is what makes sense. It's what, like, randomness is what's, and I mean, just talking about science, like, when you look at an atom, when you look at what's inside of an atom, when you realize it's just molecules that are just going and doing, and that is what knits this thing together, that it, we are all made of randomness and we are literally experiencing a collection of random experiences that create a very real, tangible existence. And it's in that that I get to make decisions about who I am, what's around me, what I want, what I don't want, it's very possible that I could lose that tomorrow. I could pass away tomorrow. I could pass away a hundred years from now. We don't know. There's so much that we don't know. And it's the human condition that because we don't know, we make up meaning. We create that meaning. And so that is just what I walk with. So when people talk about purpose, like I got to decide what my purpose was. For a long time, my purpose was to be successful and make money, and that was it. Then my purpose was to be a part of people's families and heal myself and figure out who I was. Now my purpose is to have the best time humanly possible and to share whatever it is that I have that can be useful to others, specifically to heal themselves, specifically to develop, specifically to discover who they are. That's what my purpose is right now. Someday I'm going to be a mom. My purpose will be to be an incredible mom, to make sure I raise incredible kids and whatever it is. Like someday my purpose will be to just sit and enjoy and be elderly. I pray that's my opportunity. I pray the opportunity to be old and around people that I love and not have to do anything because I've done everything that I could with my life. I am here to do everything I can with my life. And it's not necessarily about you know, serving others, I'm truly here to serve myself in addition to others. You know, it's that idea of like putting your mask on before you put someone else's on. I tried so hard, again, being raised in a Christian community and being told that I have to give everything out, give, 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 do, do, do. It's that productivity. It's that sort of model of like always doing, always giving, always be. And no one served me. My parents couldn't serve me the way I needed. The community that I lived in couldn't serve me the way that I could. The world that I live in that just so happens to be white supremacist and patriarchal at the time didn't give a crap about me. I had to become my own parent and my own friend and become myself. I had to save myself 
that was my purpose then. Now my purpose is helping others to discover and save themselves and hopefully heal the world. I just, I, I totally believe that we can heal the world. I totally believe that we can live in this idealistic utopian existence where things are and we accept and embrace and love each other. I believe in that. And I'm just here to, to be a part of that. That is what I'm here to do right now. But my purpose has changed a thousand times. My definition has changed a thousand times and I don't doubt that it will continue to. I love that. And I, again, you're speaking that out loud and sort of modeling that gives other people permission to do the same. And I, I think that's part of what's so powerful about your voice. Well, I, I just want to say I being in Christian community, as long as I had been, I mean, I watched more specifically women, but it was definitely men and women, but women struggling with identity, struggling with what is my purpose. I mean, to the point that they were, you know, taking medications for anxiety or in some cases where they didn't believe medications, you know, ended up in psych wards because they couldn't figure out their purpose. They couldn't figure out how to please God. They couldn't figure out what the instruction manual is or where it was or anything. And it's like, it's called free will. I mean, it's, it's called, you know, you're here to do what you want. You know, you are a little molecule of God. And that is why we're called to love each other. Loving ourselves and loving one another is loving and worshiping God. That's what it is. And it doesn't matter what your religion is or anything. Like we are here to be and be together. And we just make that so hard because we, we take on other people's definitions and try to do it right. And there's no such thing. But anyway. I love that. Two last questions for you. Yes. Number one, what are you most afraid of? don't have any fears I honestly and I've never had any fears I've never been afraid I think there was a time that the thing I was most afraid of was like my mom (laughs) (laughs) I was afraid of my mom I was afraid of disappointing my dad you know but now like there's just nothing that I fear I, I think there are so many things to be afraid of but one of the things that I've learned is that fear is often it's an illusion like the things that I would be afraid of aren't actually here. They haven't actually happened. They won't happen. So do you feel anxiety? Do you feel fear in your body sometimes? I have. There was a time that I was, I mean, debilitated by anxiety. But as I said, I mean, over 2020, when the world was melting, (laughs) I went inward. And I have not had an experience with anxiety since. And that doesn't mean that I'm not confused or uncertain or whatever it is but I mean introspection is key like getting to know who you are and grounding that like grounding down discovering who you are you literally learn that there is nothing to be afraid of I think it was Albert Einstein who I adore who said I'm a man who has known a great many worry most of which never actually happened yep and just walking with that like I have to remember like the thing that I'm worried about doesn't exist at all or yet and when it does yeah I am safe in the present moment right yeah yeah so I don't experience anxiety and there isn't anything that I can point to that I'm afraid of but I would probably say like I don't want to leave this world without experiencing everything that's possible for me to experience the women Mm -hmm. and men in my lineage Specifically, they were so limited by poverty and racism and the, the times and what was expected at the time or not expected or just lack 
they were so limited and I have such access. This is such a different time, not experiencing everything I can to its absolute nth, not pursuing even failure, like, you know, even failure. I had, we talked about this. I had a book deal at the beginning of, you know, the global health (laughs) effort. And then two years later, because I was busy introspecting and healing and all these things, I didn't write it. So my book deal dissolved. Even that experience, like, That was supposed to happen the way it happened, period. I'm grateful for that experience. And now I get to do something else with this new book deal. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. Realizing that losing something doesn't mean you're a failure or it's forever. Realizing that there are always opportunities. Realizing there's always another agent. There's always another book deal. There's always another check. There's always another job. There's always another lover. There's always another town. There's always something else yeah it's impossible i don't know it's it's really hard for me to be afraid and anxiety is just natural like it really is but then really talking to that anxiety and getting real with that anxiety and sometimes it takes a minute and sometimes it takes a a day or two (laughs) you know there have been times that it's taken years but just getting real with yourself yeah i love that okay last question Mm -hmm. what do you most look forward to in your future If you had asked me this, like, maybe a year ago, I'd have totally a different answer. But, you know, I I met an amazing partner in August. We got engaged in November. And we're, you know, preparing to get married. And we're talking about having a family. So it's like, I, and I'm well into my 30s. I'm so much closer to 40 than probably people think I am. But people that don't know me, I'm very close to 40. And just getting to a stage where family and home life and partnership is such a glorious and joyous reality. Like I've been single for so long, happily, joyously, fruitfully, and now having the experience as a fully formed adult, as a fully formed, having had a lifetime of actual experience, healing, all that stuff. And to now get to see what it's like to put my life together with someone else and then potentially create new life. I'm, I'm excited about everything, but I, I am excited about what it looks like to create something with someone else, something like a family, something like a marriage. That's what I'm excited about right now, because it, it seems really hard and really scary. <laughs> well, how, how beautiful is it that in all of those years, to use your own words, you know, you were in this place of there is always something else. So I'm going to be present mm-hmm. with my singleness with this opportunity to get to know myself and what you didn't know then was that you would meet this person and have the, you know, where a lot of, I think women in particular lay around thinking like, if only, if only, if only (laughs) their focus is on what they don't have or what might happen in the future. And then they aren't fully present in their own lives and sort of building their own sense of joy. And I guarantee, because the same thing happened to me, you will be, a much more fulfilled partner having had that experience than if you had been so focused on just finding a partner. So I I wish you the best of luck, though I I don't think you're going to need it. I'm excited for you. And I think you've had a short engagement and you and I talked briefly about a month ago about how when you're at a certain age and you have spent so much time getting to know yourself, when you find your person it doesn't take very long to know they're your person. Oh, no. I mean, 
we and he he and I are exactly the same age. We're, we're exactly thirty seven within a few months, and it was the same thing for him. Like, and he had such an interesting life, and you know, didn't think that there was anybody out there. And literally, we just like within days, it was like, oh, so we're oh, so we're gonna we're gonna get married, right? Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Like, we're doing this life thing together for, for now on. Like, okay. Like, it's just been, it's really, it's really, really true. And, you know, it has been amazing. Like, my single life was, I, I don't think anyone had more fun single than I did. And I just, yeah, I, I really look forward to whatever is going to be here. And I will also say, just kind of a plug, uh, I have a new radio show on 96.7 here in Portland. I'm very excited. Laboratory PDX. Yes, the Fab Lab was my kid's show. Yes, Laboratory PDX is my show for adults. Awesome. But just the evolution of that. Like, I've been crazy Aunt Lindsay or Aunt Lindsay for so long. I've been single and very specific in who I was for so long. And now to step into whatever this graduation, this evolution is, discovering what that's going to be. I have no idea what my radio show is going to be about. I have no idea what the next book is. Well, I do know what the book's going to be about, but like, it's all an experiment. It's all an experiment. And I just can't wait to see what's going to happen next. So I'm, I'm excited for life period. Yeah. I love that. And I love this idea that your identity can shift and morph over time, just like your purpose can. Lindsay, thank you so much for hanging out with me for the last hour. This has been such a joy. You are such a, a well of wisdom. And I don't know, you've got me thinking about so many things in this conversation that I'm going to go back and reflect on. I already know what the podcast art is going to be for your episode because you, ah! you said so many things, which I wrote down, but I've, I've settled on one that I'm going to create. So I'm going to surprise you with it. Anyway. I'm, tr- I'm trying not to burst. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks, Lisa. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.